You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, what a great morning so far. Thank you for being here. You didn't have to be here on such a dreary day outside. Just been thinking lately how grateful I am for the rhythms that the Lord established for us first in the Sabbath, one day a week, resting, worshiping. For us, the Lord's Day, where we come together and worship the Lord. And we've done so uh, under beautiful leadership this morning so far. I'm going to come back to that interview with David and Keisha. Thank you guys so much. That helps us a great deal to understand the need and opportunities for us to serve. I wanted to say about the new members who were here this morning, one thing they all have in common, they went through the Grace Connection class. So this is the plug for Grace Connection next weekend, Friday and Saturday. If you're new to Grace, you want to learn more about it, I mean, sorry, Saturday and Sunday, not Friday and Saturday. Um, Be here 9 o'clock Saturday morning. You'll learn about what we believe, how we function, what opportunities there are for service at the Grace Connection class, and then it'll follow up. It's three hours Saturday morning, then one hour Sunday morning between 9.30 and 10.30, so you can still make the second service. And I also... I don't usually do this. We have so many people that come through and who used to be members, they're back, or special guests. But whenever missionaries are here, I like to recognize them. So a whole row full of Oakleys back here. I mean, a bunch of Oakleys. And if I start naming them, I'll forget Alex's name, so I better not. But Sheila's here. We're really grateful. Brianna, Katie, Logan, thank you guys for being here in the newest Oakley, whose name I'm sure I've forgotten. Um, But if you get a chance to speak with them, and I was just during worship, I was thinking, man, I'm connected to Bob Anderson, who was the founder. These guys know Bob and Pat Anderson, but I'm also connected to them. Just the many years that the Lord has used TVR in a very special way. Thank you guys for your service, and thanks for being here this morning. Not the case, quite the same applause Lee got or the new members, but hey, you, you'll take it. I know. You say, we went and they clapped for us and everything. Well, I, I hope that 1 Corinthians has been as fascinating for you as it has been for me. Although much in Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians was harsh and corrective in nature, there is much, as we've said many times, talked about many times before. There's much in this epistle that's not in the other epistles about church life. So it's an important letter for us to study. And I have enjoyed this time in 1 Corinthians far more than I anticipated. I was looking forward to being here, but a lot more than I anticipated. I have found great pleasure. I must confess, though, that the study and preparation for preaching through chapters 12 through 14 has been humbling. There is nuance in Paul's teaching on the gifts of the Spirit that has eluded me for years in my study in the past. As with so many 
areas of life, the more you learn about something, the more you know exactly what it is that you don't know about that topic. While my understanding about spiritual gifts has not changed dramatically, the deep dive into these chapters has made me realize how inadequate it is to be content with bits and pieces and how unsatisfying it is, at least for me, for positions to be left unchallenged. I, I couldn't say this for the first 15, 18 years of ministry here, and I don't say it that many times, but every once in a while I'll say, think about it. If you haven't changed your, your thoughts about a position that you have held, a biblical position that you've held in the last 10 years, are you really growing as a Christian? I mean, do you get saved? And when is the time that you know it all? When is the time when you know everything there is to know and you're no longer going to change what you think? I do my best not to preach myself into a corner here, but it's easy to do and it's easy to say, well, I've believed this for a long time. I can't believe any differently. Don't get worried. I'm not going to change very much. I haven't changed much, but again, my understanding has been tweaked. I've been reading a new book this week, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation by Colin Hansen. Look, I honestly think I could have read this book in one day if the sermon hadn't been pressing. I've struggled most of this week with the title for this message, which might not seem that big a deal to you, but it's, a, it's my version of the big idea in preaching. I've long, and I'm sorry to be talking about me so much. I really don't mean to in this part of the service. But I've long struggled with the notion that there is a big idea for every paragraph of Scripture. If you're a preacher, that's the first thing you learn. You've got to determine what the big idea is. And I've always wondered, and I've only heard one person, one other person say, I'm just not so sure about that. I know it's a thing with preachers, but I don't see it. Fortunately, that one person was Tim Keller. So that, then I felt a little bit of relief when I heard him say it. But there's truth to this. Until I can get a title for the message, I can't really get going. You need to know what the focus of a text is before you can get going. I struggle with articulating the primary focus for 1 Corinthians 14 verses 1 to 19. I didn't want to title the message Prophecy in Tongues or The Superiority of Prophecy over Tongues. Next week's text, 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 40, is going to be a whole lot easier to summarize with something like order in the church. You know, instead of order in the court, it's order in the church. But this first half of chapter 14 is a challenge for a Sunday morning sermon. The subtitle to Colin Hansen's book about Tim Keller provided direction for the title of today's text, which is God's Design for Worship with Both Heart and Mind. In today's text, we will observe Paul exposing the error of those who elevated spiritual experience above thoughtful reflection on Scripture. 
It might just as easily have gone the other way. In fact, have we not observed Paul rebuking those who were so taken with their own intellect and their logic and their ability to use rhetoric in a presentation of the gospel? We've seen that going already. Chances are good that it was these same intellectuals and social elites who were now flaunting what they assumed to be God's blessing on them at the expense of others as evidenced by the gift of tongues. Those who received the spiritual gift of tongues looked down on others, just like those who understood scripture and understood logic and rhetoric and how to put it all together, look down on others. So I've repeatedly cautioned you in these sessions not to assume you know the conclusion to the whole until we get to the end, which will be next week. Allison said, I'm looking forward to this sermon today. I'm like, I'm looking forward to being past this sermon uh, today. Paul was addressing a specific issue in a specific church. And while there is application today, we are finding Paul building towards this conclusion. Today's text is a long one, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 19. So we're going to begin by just reading the first five verses, then try to get a sense of what Paul was saying as we work through the text. And at the end, the application is going to mostly have to wait until next week. But there are three implications from this text that will hopefully lead to fruitful discussion in the home groups this week. And I will share those at the end of the message. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Corinthians 14, reading verses 1 through 5. Remember, we've just come off of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Or if you're a teenager, the love chapter. But he's talking about love in the church. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets or translates so that the church may be built up. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. I think the first order of business is to define what Paul means and what God means when he talks about the gifts of tongues and prophecy. First, Tongues, are they known languages or xenoglossia? Known languages, but unknown to the one speaking in tongues, thus a translator is required? Or are they glossolalia, legitimate languages that are unknown to humans and thus require the spiritual gift of interpretation or really just a translator? The answer is more difficult to nail down than you might assume. I lean towards these being known languages, but it's possible that tongues 
in 1 Corinthians, not in Acts so much, but in 1 Corinthians, could be languages that are unknown to humans. Now, know that the language Paul used in 1 Corinthians 13.1 when he spoke about the tongues of angels or the languages or the language of angels was hyperbolic in nature. He was using hyperbole, exaggerating to an extreme to make his point, just like he said, some people... What if you had enough faith that you could move a mountain? And to my knowledge, spear tops are still in place up at Team Valley. So no one's done that. So maybe no one's spoken in a tongue of angels or a language of angels. But it could be that this is a language unknown to humans. But it's a legitimate language that was being used. Even if the gift of tongues refers to ecstatic utterances. And remember, the Corinthians had this habit of trying to take the ways of the world and bring them into the church. And in the pagan temples, ecstatic utterances where people would go into a trance. Even if these were ecstatic utterances, there's a very clear sense that Paul is saying you will not be out of control. If, you, if this is a legitimate gift of the Spirit, you'll be aware that God is using you in this particular way. Defining the New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy is an equally slippery proposition. It, it's clear that the New Testament prophets did not enjoy the same authority as the Old Testament prophets were afforded. Now, if you're just coming in in the middle of all of these sermons, you might be missing a little bit or two, but you, you can go back. They're on the website, podcasts. You can get these sermons. But this um, idea of a, of, of a New Testament prophet was different than an Old Testament prophet. Now, the prophets... And apostles that we've talked about in Ephesians 2 that laid the foundation for the scripture. They, they preached the, the, the word that became the scripture or wrote the word that became the scripture. Those prophets and apostles, that office is done. We don't have those anymore. So, New Testament prophets in the sense of 1 Corinthians 14 did not have the same authority as the Old Testament prophets. So when an Old Testament prophet proved to be a true spokesperson for the Lord, his words were to be followed thereafter without question. Not so in the New Testament, much of which we will see, more of which we will see next Sunday morning. So what was the gift of prophecy and is it still in use in our day? The ESV study Bible nicely summarizes the three views held by most churches. There are some other views or variations of these, but you can really bring it down to these three. First, the gift of prophecy is the same as the Old Testament gift with the same authority as the Old Testament prophets and thus it carries the same weight as Scripture. So some people believe if a, if a prophet of the Lord stands up in a church service and says, thus says the Lord, it's the same weight as Scripture. Second, and, and that's not what most people believe, but that is a belief. Second, prophecy indicates a spontaneous revelation. I've got it in quotation marks. I'll explain in a moment. It, 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 it indicates a spontaneous revelation from God that must be evaluated by Scripture and mature believers. It does not have the same weight as scripture or apostolic teaching because it could be 
wrong. Even Agabus, who prophesied that Paul would be bound when he got to, to Jerusalem, had some of the details mixed up. A little bit, not mixed up, but he just, they, it happened differently than Agabus would say or had said. Number three, the spiritual gift. This gift, the gift of prophecy, is the spiritual gift of preaching or teaching. And so a lot of people will say, no, nah, it's not exactly the same as it used to be. It's kind of like, but, but you act like a prophet when you're preaching. The same as a person who is over a broad range of churches might act as an apostle, especially in an area where uh, the word has not previously been very readily available or in a place where there's this great demonic warfare that we've talked about, spiritual warfare with a lot of demonic activity. So you may have a person who functions like an apostle. A lot of people that believe number three think there are people who function like a prophet, but there's really no need for prophets anymore. Now, I need to say that this study has advanced my thinking on this issue. You might disagree that it's an advance, but after much study, this is my conclusion. I've always thought that number three is the best understanding of the New Testament gift of prophecy. And that's probably been due to my fear that the only plausible alternative is number two, which of course can lead to all sorts of error and heresy. You got to know this about scripture. It's nuanced. And the writers of scripture don't care whether you misunderstand or not. That's important to understand. And what we do though is we often protect against a misapplication of a truth in scripture. And there's good reason for that. I understand the caution. But if you're thinking that it's the only possible alternative, number one is to number three, you're aware that that can lead to all kinds of heresy and error. Uh, this is not the way the scripture describes revelation, though. And that's been my <coughs> thing with revelation. I'm saying be careful how you use this word because revelation is God revealing something to us. And is he revealing new truth? No, he does reveal things to different ones of us, though, in which it's fair to use this word revelation if you don't misuse it. As Don Carson says, well, let me say, 1 Corinthians 2.10, Paul says that the Holy Spirit revealed the truth of the gospel to us. He revealed himself to us through the scripture. As Don Carson says, we should not confuse the language of Protestant systematic theology with the language that the writers of scripture used. When they would talk about revelation, it didn't always mean that which will become scripture. Most theologians from the early church to the present time consider the second of our three option as the best definition of the New Testament gift of prophecy. From the earliest days of the church, the gift of prophecy has been acknowledged as a legitimate gift that continued after the apostolic age. So it's important that we give a definition of this New Testament gift of prophecy. We tend to think of the manifestation of this gift presenting as a stern warning against sin and a call to repentance. 
you know, you think about Billy Graham in his early days as a prophet. He's got the Bible and he's, you know, he's got that finger out there and, and you need to listen to this. That's why we speak of one having a prophetic voice. The New Testament understanding of this gift, however, and you'll see this in, this, in our text, is one of encouragement and building up and even of comfort. I mean, we, we get Isaiah and Jeremiah and the ways that they preach, but you also remember Isaiah saying, comfort, comfort my people. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul spoke of every spiritual gift being of equal value in God's design for the church. And now in verse 14, though, he's going to speak about the elevation of prophecy over tongues. Is this a contradiction? No. He was making a point that spiritual gifts should be used to build up and unify rather than tear down and drive apart. It's almost as if Paul were saying, look, I didn't want to go here, but you forced my hand. So let's talk about it. Let's just talk about these two gifts and see which one benefits the church more. So with this groundwork having been laid, we can work rather quickly through this text. As we begin in verse 1 of chapter 14, don't separate chapter 14 from the two chapters that come before it. He begins the comparison by encouraging Corinthians to pursue love and to seek the gifts that build up the entire body rather than the ones that are inwardly focused. The one who speaks in tongues is in private communion with God, while the one who is encouraging and comforting is building up the entire body. Paul goes on in verses 4 to 5 to question the benefit of speaking in tongues in a corporate worship setting without an interpreter because of the limited benefit to the others who were in the church. Does, did Paul imply in verse 4 that all should speak in tongues? Well, if you think that in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, where Paul said, I wish that you would all be like I am and remain single. So if, you're single, if you think he implied that all single people should remain single and no Christian should ever get married from that time forth, then it would be okay to interpret this as saying that Paul wants everybody to be able to speak in tongues. But he's already said in chapter 12, do all prophesy? Do all speak in tongues? Do all do this? No. No, we all have different gifts that are to be used for building up the body. It was a matter of what was beneficial as we see in verse 6. The ultimate point that Paul was making about tongues was intelligibility. It's a big word, right? Is it intelligible or can other people understand what is being, saying? It, being said? If not, what is the benefit to the body. Think about all the ways that the brothers and sisters here at Grace use the spiritual gifts that they have been given. I'm eager for these new members uh, today to begin to use the gifts that, that the Lord has given them in the service of the body at large. There's almost 
always a benefit to what all of you do. If it's opening the door for you to get in out of a nasty, rainy day like this, if it's washing the dish in the kitchen, even if we don't know anything about what you're doing, we've gotten a window on what's going on in the back right now as we're in here worshiping. Uh, there's always a benefit to the body. In verse 9, Paul issued a challenge to those who were speaking in tongues without an interpreter, declaring that their practice was no more useful than speaking into the air. It's the thing about Paul. He never knew really where he stood on things, you know. He just wouldn't really say it plainly like he, you could understand what he was saying. In verse 10, Paul uses an example that we all understand. When two people are speaking different languages to one another... You don't really know what they're saying. Uh, this is going to be news to some of you, but Allison has made it clear to me that early in March, she's going to be leaving me for two weeks. She's going to Australia. <laughs> and I'm going to join her two weeks into her trip. But now I'm going to Australia, so I'm going to have to brush up on my Australian, you know. I mean, I, how Make sure that we understand one another. No, we, we won't have any problem in Australia. When you go to France, they pretend like they don't understand English. But if two people don't understand one another, then you can't really communicate like you want to. In verse 12, Paul chided the Corinthians by challenging them to pursue gifts that will build others up rather than benefit only themselves. Don't miss this, though. Well, I'm just waiting until next week. There's so many things I want to say this morning that will become really clear next week, but let's just let it go like Paul is building it. Now we come to some important verses that bring us to the focus of the text, worshiping the Lord with both heart and mind, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you were saying? It seems, as Paul's argument builds, that he thinks of speaking in tongues as primarily praying in tongues, which in turn is a private expression of praise from the individual to the Lord and thus as we will see, better used in private and not in a church service. Now, Paul's going to say, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he's surely not condemning it. He's saying it's beneficial. Apparently, he thought it was or he would have discontinued the practice and said, no, I can't see that this is from the Lord. But he is making clear it's better in private than it is in public. Why? Because others will not know what you're saying. And, and the outsider in verse 16 
likely refers to another believer because only believers would say, amen. Go on your preferred platform for social media and put gospel stuff on there. Who's going to say amen? Believers. Those who are sympathetic. Others might say things you don't want to hear, so maybe don't do that, okay? Um, next week, the outsider is going to be an unbeliever. But here, Paul is referencing believers who cannot judge what is being said if they don't understand. And understanding is critical to corporate worship. There's often a question about whether one should preach to the heart or the mind. For starters, you can make the most logical presentation of the gospel ever given to a, an extremely intelligent person, and they're not even going to understand what you say, much less believe it if the Spirit of God is not working. So he's already talked about the foolishness of preaching early in 1 Corinthians and how it, the gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe, but to those who believe, it's the power of God, and, it's, and we are being saved if we believe the gospel. So you can't, it's foolish to preach only to the mind. But the heart is more than the place where our deepest emotions reside or the part that really cares about spiritual things. Tim Keller says this in his book, Preaching. Quote, modern readers of the Bible will almost always misunderstand the term heart. They run it through their contemporary grid and conclude that it means the emotions. But the Bible often talks about thinking with the heart or acting with the heart. In the Bible, the heart is the seed of the mind, will, and emotions all together. Genesis 6-5 says about the human race that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Bible knows no dualism between head and heart. Close quote. Amen. Yet we know that true worship is more than mental assent. In a corporate setting, though, this is important to understand. True worship is not less than mental assent of an understanding of what is being stated. Verses 17 through 19. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue or in another language. Not much to add to that. Three implications from the text that will lead to multiple applications, beginning with spirit-generated love leads us to care more about others than ourselves. Jesus said, as reported by Paul in the book of Acts, it's more profitable to give than to receive this truth is seen everywhere in Scripture, and it plays out in our lives. When you love someone deeply and give your whole being to that person, you often 
receive far more than you give. But it's risky to love, isn't it? You might lose the one that you love. And the one you love might turn on you. And there is no pain quite like that pain. Love does not protect itself, though. It continues to give. 1 Corinthians 13 was not written specifically to strengthen marital love or family love, although it certainly does. 1 Corinthians 13 was written first to strengthen love within the church. We're to care more about others than ourselves as we use the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Without trying to force our current church need into the text, I asked David and Keisha to have the interview that they did to take some of the sermon time to explain our need in children's ministry. And as Keisha pointed out, doesn't require that you be a teacher. There are so many ways that you can serve in children's ministry. This certainly fits with 1 Corinthians 12, the need for the body, as David pointed out. And I, I, I don't usually, I, I hope, think you would agree that I try to let Scripture do the hard challenge in us. I don't do this too often, but there's no need. There is no reason for us to have a children's ministry issue. We, every church does, but why should we? If we're all functioning the way that we're supposed to, why should we have this problem? We shouldn't. It's a great idea for you to take a, a week and, and go back into the children's ministry and see what goes on. Those of you, look, you know what the problem is in most churches with children's ministry? Parents of young mothers, and I'm talking to men as well as women, we do the background checks. We have so many security protocols in place in the back. We are very careful about our kids. But men and women, both of you, husbands and wives, parents, go back there. But most parents of children that are in children's ministry say, you know, I do it six and a half days a week or six and three quarters days. Let me just have a few minutes of peace. I don't want to do it on Sunday morning. And those of you who have already done your time, you say, well, I've done my time. That's it. I don't need to be in children's ministry. I did that back in the day. Now it's time for the young mothers to do. No, we can't have that attitude. So, we will continue to have a different interview, same topic, new material every Sunday until we no longer have this issue. Teenagers, I'm trying to get you some help, okay? <laughs> Think about it. Pray about it. Those substitutes, that might be one of the key places we need help. Second, when a gospel-saturated message is clear, a godly response is possible. There is no way to overestimate the relation between word and response. David Calvert did his PhD, Speech Act Theory, the importance of the word being spoken 
In a day when your words can be used against you to destroy your life, even words that were said in jest or were misunderstood, it's natural to want to protect yourself. The gospel is not the message that many want to hear, but it's what all need to hear. And when we speak the gospel, we're speaking life and judgment. And that's difficult. And those who don't believe understand that judgment part. That's why they don't want to hear it. That's why it's so difficult. How best to share the gospel with the world? Begin by practicing sharing it with each other. I'm not talking about saying, okay, Bert, let's go over to the side and do the plan of salvation. We'll both, you know, and we'll do some object. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying we ought to be so saturated with gospel truth that we don't even think about using spiritual gifts to benefit ourselves. We're using them to benefit others. The world doesn't want to hear the gospel oftentimes. But you know what? They are attracted when we love each other. That's the reason you can't make the decision, I'm not going to love anymore, it hurts too badly, it's too much risk, it's too costly. We have to love you can't live that way. So love one another. When you engage in this loving activity between one another as a church, then the last point comes into focus. The responsibility for building up the body through the spoken word extends beyond the teacher's of the church. Encouragement, strengthening, comforting. These are the marks of the New Testament gift of prophecy. It's not so much calling out, although there's a place for that, as it is building up. A word fitly spoken, Proverbs 25, 11 says, is like apples of gold in a silver setting. Many of us live our lives wondering if this is going to be the day when I say the wrong thing or just make the wrong move. What if we just, what if we just loved each other? Didn't worry so much of that, about that. What if we cared about one another to give people a pass when they say something stupid or when they do something they ought not to do? It's one of the ways that we become effective servants in a world that is little interested in the kingdom of heaven. We are foreigners in what is at times a hostile land. A huge part of our battle plan in this war that fights with love rather than malice is to first love one another well and to serve one another according to his design. And his design is that that love will overflow to the world. And they'll see it be attracted. And if the spirit of God is working in their lives, they will believe. Exalt, establish, engage. Let's pray. Father,
It's really interesting to me how we look at this book of 1 Corinthians that is so rich and so difficult all at the same time. And we are instructed. And 1 Corinthians 13 is the heart of these three chapters. And really in many ways it's the heart of the entire book. Built on the foundation of the gospel truth. And the beauty of the, of the message of the cross. That's so prominent in those first three chapters. Lord, it was love that put Jesus on the cross. And it's love that will cause us to grow together according to your design. It's a beautiful one. We thank you for it. And we pray that you would help us to yield our hearts as we sing your praise. It's in Jesus' name that we offer our praise and our thanks and our request. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content and share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.